0: Good morning, City Light Church, good to be with y'all. My name is Gavin, I'm one of the pastors, and it's time to open our Bibles. So open your Bibles, or open your phones and get the fake Bibles on your phone and open those. Or if you don't have a fake Bible on your phone or a real Bible, uh, the verses will be on the screen. But I'll tell you where we're gonna be at today. We're gonna be in John chapter three, verses 22 through 30. And I know that the Lord is with us this morning because it's 70 degrees in February, amen? Amen. Whoo, hallelujah. I feel like I got to cheat winter this year. I got to be in Florida last week with some friends from Iowa, and then uh, 70 degrees here, and I feel like we just got to cheat Winter and my family. By the way, it's kind of fun. We have a whole bunch of friends in Northwest Iowa that listen to these podcasts every single week. So shout out to the Northwest Iowa people. Maybe someday we're going to have a city light, uh, Rock Valley, Iowa, something like that. So pray into that. Some of you guys know Rock Valley. Everyone has a connection to Northwest Iowa. That's what I have learned this summer. All right or this winter. Chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. As you find your way there, let me set up today's nine verses with this. The Bible teaches us about who God is. If it were not for God's word, we would not know about God except for what we can learn about him from creation. So the Bible tells us about who God is. The Bible also tells us who we are. Without the Bible telling us who we are, we would be somewhat disoriented, trying to navigate our own existence on this planet. So the Bible tells us who God is and who we are and how we interact with God and how we interact with on this world. And the Bible tells us two things about ourselves. And these two truths, when they live in harmony and we embrace them, will lead us to um, do okay in this life and kind of orient our way. Uh, And those two truths are this. Truth number one, the Bible affirms that you have a measurable value. And truth number two is that life is not about you. Okay, we need to hold these in Harmony, let me unpack this. By virtue of being an image bearer of God, you have incredible and immeasurable value, dignity, and worth. And so God made you, and as a human being, he made you in his image and in his likeness. And because you are an image bearer, you have immeasurable value. And from conception to natural final breath, you are to be cherished and protected, valued, and respected simultaneously. Life is not about you. And so you're valuable, but you're not in first place of priority or preeminence uh, or prominence. And so here's the order of priority that God gives us. The first in order priority is God. Second is others. And third, ourselves. And so we, when we get these truths rightly and understand them and hold them in harmony, we will live lives that are marked by contentment, humility, and joy. But listen to this, we live in a culture that has these two truths completely mixed around and misguided and misaligned, and the culture, the cultural current that we swim in is telling us two very different things, and these two are lies. And these two lies that the culture would tell us is, number one, your value is to be determined, and life is all about you. Do you see how they get those mixed around? So here's what the culture is saying. The culture would tell you that your maybe or maybe not valuable. In fact, uh, if your parents decide to let you live beyond nine months, you will then be exposed to a jury of your peers who will determine your value based on your likability or your academic requirements or your athleticism or your success or your productivity or your intelligence or your popularity. And we are one of the most insecure generations in the history of generations because our value has somehow been detached from our identity as image bearers of God and attached to our ability to perform and make a name and really be somebody. And so the culture would tell you, I don't know if you're valuable. It's kind of up to a jury of your peers. Conversely, the culture then ironically tells us that life is all about us. We're trained from a very early age that we are all extraordinarily special people and the whole world revolves around us. And so we all have an online profile wherein we put our very best pictures, you know, and and, and the very best representation of ourselves, highly curated, because we are all very well that the whole world is dying to know what we had for lunch today. Everything is about us, and the way that we naturally live, or our culture tells us to live, is that the whole world is but a movie, and we are the lead character, and everyone else is but a supporting actor in the drama about me. And so here's what happens when we start to believe the the lies that the culture tells us about who we are rather than the truths that God tells us about who we are. What happens is rather than living lives of contentment and humility and joy, we start to live lives of comparison, competition, and insecurity. And what we're going to see today in our text is but a very picture of this same thing. We're going to see some guys who, in their day, got very much mixed up about these truths and these lies in many of the same ways that we do today. And the setting is this. Remember, John the Baptist has been on the scene for a while. We met him back in chapter one. And John the Baptist has a little ministry team, and his ministry is to preach and to lead people into baptism. So he's got his disciples or his ministry team. He preaches. His little ministry team disciples the people. Now Jesus has stepped onto the scene, and Jesus additionally has some disciples, and Jesus is now starting a public preaching ministry, and people are traveling from all over to listen to him, and some of Jesus' disciples have taken on the ministry of baptism. So Jesus' disciples are baptism, they're baptizing people. Now, keep in mind, these guys are on the same proverbial team, okay? They have the same goal. They're preaching the Bible. They're calling people to faith and repentance. But what happens is, among John's disciples, comparison, competition, and insecurity creep in as the ministry down the street starts to grow and experience some success. And what we're going to see in this interaction in our nine verses today is we're going to see John the Baptist rise up again, once again, as a great example of the faith. He's a man who has this figured out. He knows that he's got incredible value, dignity, and worth that are not attached to his ministry performance, and he knows additionally that he's just not that important in the grand scheme of things. And so what we're going to see is we're going to see John sort of um, lead his disciples, his ministry team, back to a place of contentment, humility, and joy. And he does this really on two planes. He starts on the horizontal plane talking to these men about how they relate to and interact with other people. And then he's going to take them to a vertical plane and explaining how we are to live in relationship with Jesus in a position of first priority and how that uh, gives way to the way we relate to other people. And so as we walk through sort of this, you know, point one horizontal plane, point two, this vertical plane, I want to frame this by way of a couple questions for all of us to kind of assess our own hearts. And I want to frame these questions in the language of the two truths that I shared with you. And so as we look at Jesus' response on the horizontal plane, I want you to ask yourself this question. Where do I find my value? Where do I find my value? And as we go to the, hor- or the vertical plane that we're going to see John get to, I want you to ask the question, is my life really about me, or is it about Jesus? And so I want us to do a little assessment of our own hearts as we examine the Word of God today. And so we're going to hit the first seven verses And uh, as we go through this, I want in your mind's eye the question, honestly, where do I find my sense of value? Chapter 3 and verse 22. Here's the setup. It says, And after Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with, uh, with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salem, because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Okay, so here's our two different ministry teams. We know that John was there doing his uh, baptism ministry first. Now Jesus has come, and his disciples are also baptizing. Later in chapter 4 and verse 1, we learn that Jesus was not baptizing, but it was his ministry. And what happens is Jesus' ministry starts to take off. It starts to grow. The crowds are leaving John. They are going to Jesus. And watch the way that John's disciples react. Verse 25. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Now, we don't know the exact nature of this conversation um, or this uh, discussion, but we know it had something to do with purification. In other words, their baptisms. And it likely went something like, why is, why is his baptism working and ours is not? Are we doing it right? Is he doing something different? They've got the bigger crowds. And so verse 26 says, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi... He who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. So the church down the street is blowing up. It's really growing. Jesus and his ministry is thriving. How did John and his, well, how did John's disciples react to the success of the ministry down the street? Do they send them a congratulations card and some flowers in the mail? Do they send them an email, say, hey, really proud of you guys, so you're taking on a lot. Can we help? No, 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 no. What do they do? They get insecure, and they compete, and they compare. Do you notice their language? Do you notice the emotional exaggeration as they exaggerate? Uh, what, What do they say? Look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. Look, John, you affirm this guy, and now you've messed everything up. You gave testimony, and now everyone's going to them. Well, honestly, is everyone going to Jesus to get baptized? No, it's clear an exaggeration. John's still baptizing, isn't he? But isn't that how we all react when we feel threatened? We sort of inflate the situation. My kids do this. How come he gets all the toys and I never get any toys? They have all the fun and I never get to have any fun. Really, you've never got a toy. You've never had any fun. Like you just live in your room all the time and I slide food under the door. What do you mean you've never had any? We do the same thing though, don't we? When we feel insecure, overlooked, we react. Why does the boss give all the affirmation and praise to them, and I never get noticed for my contributions to the organization? Why does everything always go right for my friend, but nothing ever goes right for me? Really, nothing ever, and everything always. But isn't that the way that we react? Uh, we, we inflate things, we feel sorry for ourselves, and that's what John's disciples are doing here in this moment. And here's what went wrong for these guys. Here's here's where they started to get insecure. For these guys, their value, they started to to view their value um, as a result of their ministry success. And so when their success is threatened, they feel that their value is being threatened as well. And when when the success of other people starts to eclipse their own success, they get defensive and they get insecure. And they compete and they compare and they get irrational. Don't we do the same thing? When we value ourselves based on our accomplishments, it really becomes difficult to celebrate the success of other people around us. And when our success starts to get eclipsed by others, we react with insecurity, competitiveness, and comparison. Have you been in that situation before? Ever felt like you lived a season in the spotlight and all of a sudden you got relegated to the shadows? How did that make you feel? What went on in your heart? Did you ever feel eclipsed or overshadowed by the prevailing prominence of someone else. How did you react in that moment? The way that we react when we feel overlooked and out of the spotlight will be one great indicator of where we find our value. But now watch John's reaction. So they come whining to John. Everyone's going over there. I love John's reaction. I love this man. Look at verse 27. He had this figured out. John answered, "...a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven." you know what those words are? Those are the words of a man who's content. What does he say? Hey, listen, if they got a good thing going on, it came from God. God's sovereign. He's over all things. If they got a good thing going on, that's because of God. And so give glory to God. He's a man who's content. Furthermore, he's just not concerned with how big his crowd is. His value isn't tied to his quote-unquote success. He says, listen, God is in charge. And then look what he says in verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. In other words, he's saying, guys, this ain't about me. I'm not Michael Jordan. I'm Pippin at best, okay? I get give the assists. He's the star of the show. My success and my va- or my value is not tied to my productivity and to my success. But we do the same thing. But in, ten, but in John's life, there's not a tinge of rivalry, jealousy, or bitterness. Even as the ministry down the street starts to take off, even as his, as his name and fame gets eclipsed by someone else who has stepped onto the scene, what does he do? He continues to stick to his calling. He serves God with gladness and joy because his value didn't come from his crowd. Do you see the freedom in that? City Light, this desire to be approved of and like and recognize is functional slavery. But John shows this amazing freedom that we don't need to be threatened by other people. So can I just candidly remind you in the room that life is not an audition. You are not on trial. We are not determining your value, your dignity, or your worth that has been given to you by God. And you have nothing to prove. So let me press this in by way of application, unless you're not picking up what I'm saying yet. Uh, I want to talk the, to the students in the room, especially the medical students, the PA students, the farm students, the whatever. Because of our proximity to the medical center, like 90% of you guys are in medis- medical school, which means we have no money now, but in 10 years when you all make money, we're going to be a wealthy church. But, but you're all in school right now, which is really a struggle for the donut budget. But let me talk to the medical students for, for just a second. You guys live in literally the most competitive sector of our culture. Um, I know how this works. You guys all got 4.0s. You were the valedictorians of your school. You were the top of your undergraduate class. And then you went to medical school and you were average at best, right? Why? Because everyone in medical school was the 4.0, the valedictorian at the top of their undergraduate class. class, And now you're just hoping to keep your nose above water. And it's a competitive cutthroat environment. You have to compete. That's the way the grading system works. It's not pass or fail. It's you got to be at the top of the class or you don't proceed. And it's a very competitive environment. And what I want to say to you from this text is that even in the midst of that, don't lose perspective. If you start to find your value and identity and your ability to rise above your peers, you will destroy yourself, okay? Okay your value is not on the line. Let me explain how this works. If you graduate at the very top of your medical class, do you know who you are? You are an image bearer and child of God who works as a doctor. If you graduate at the bottom of your medical class, you are an image bearer and child of God who works as a doctor. If you fail medical school, you are an image bearer and child of God who does not work as a doctor. Amen? Now, you will have a whole bunch of debt, and you've got to figure out a way to pay that off. <laughs> Pastor Joe can help walk you through some material to get through that. But what I want to say is what isn't on the line is your value. Some of you are in your careers, and you say, compete, compare. I have to do that. I work in sales. I need to beat the other guy, or I don't get paid. And I've got metrics that I have to make, or I'm in management, and it's all about the annual review. And if I get you know, below average, and I don't get exceeds expectations. I don't get the next thing, and it's all on the line. I don't say that's fine to compete and to compare and to work hard, but I want you to know what's not on the line is your value. Your value is not determined by some boss's approval or your ability to beat the other guy or some sales metrics. You are an image bearer and child of God. Stay-at-home moms, where are you at? Honey, I want to talk to you guys right now. You might be thinking, well, I'm off the hook. I don't even, you compete and compare more than anyone. You ever heard of a website called Pinterest? (laughs) You get on there, and there's like these stay-at-home moms that are apparently like, former NASA NASA engineers and like general contractors who put together all these beautiful do-it-yourself home improvement projects and crafts, and they prepare these um, snacks for their kids that are made out of whole grains and fruits and vegetables, and they're beautifully colored in the shapes of elephants and rhinoceroses (laughs) and giraffes, and they photograph the rhinoceros celery snack that their kid loves, who's perfectly um, lit in the light coming through the clean house window, and, and all the moms look at this, and they feel insecure, like, like they're horrible human beings and no value as a mom. I know you guys do it. You know what Pinterest actually means in the Greek? Pinterest is Greek for demon website. <laughs> I, I learned it in seminary. It is the devil's favorite website, and Facebook is no better either. Especially you stay at home moms. I've seen your Facebook posts. It's like workout, check, quiet time, check, house clean, check, kids lunch prepared, check, dinner prepared, check, and it's only 7 a.m. What am I going to do for the rest of the day? And the rest of the mortal moms log on at 9 a.m. still on their house code, and they see it, and they feel like a failure of a human being. Moms, can I tell you, your value, dignity, and worth is not based on the the creativity of your kids' snacks or how clean your house is. You are an image bearer of God. And let me tell you this. Those moms who post that on Facebook, they're faking it. They are so in their pajamas, I promise you. And their workout was like three jumping jacks. They are completely (laughs) posing. It did not count. Their house is not clean. Additionally... Can I point out this like competitive thing that's going on with John's disciples here? That This isn't on Pinterest or in the workplace. Where is this? This is ministry. What are they insecure about? Baptism numbers. How big their church is. Do pastors and Christian leaders compete and compare and get insecure? Oh, you bet. All of them, except for me, are horrible at this. <laughs> I'm telling you, pastors are the most insecure, narcissistic people you will ever meet. I know a lot of them. <laughs> um, maybe every now and then I can slip into that category too. In fact, last week Chris was back from, he didn't preach in like two months because he had a preemie baby and all this stuff, and I was like, well, he's just going to, he's rusty. It's going to be lame. He killed it. And so I'm in the front row thinking, awesome, you crushed it. My next thought is crap. Now I really need to crush it next week, right? Do pastors compete and compare? Yes. Do churches and ministries compete and compare? Yes. John's disciples are but a picture of ourselves in our own hearts when our ministry or our career or our leadership becomes more about proving something about ourselves, that we are valuable, that we are worthy, and less about the glory of King Jesus. But I love John the Baptist. He steps on the scene and he just patiently reminds us, listen, you're not auditioning for value or, or importance. No one has anything that didn't come from God. Our gifts come from God. Our value comes from God. And listen to me, church. When we really grab a hold of that, it frees us from insecurity and comparison and competition, and it frees us to actually love other people and celebrate their success. Amen? Cool story from this last week, uh, just to honor another church that I think is crushing it in this, in our city. Last week, remember on Sunday, we had this like open house thing out at the vacant hy v out West that we're thinking about buying for an additional gathering of this church. And we had some 400 people go into this abandoned hy v and look and pray. And we needed some place afterwards because it's just like a haunted bombed out shell of empty nothing where we could like sit down and pray and eat. And there's a church literally across the street called Redeemer Church. And they said, can we host you guys? Can we help? we'd love to be a part of this. And we said, yeah, that'd be terrific. And so we meet in this other church building, and the lead pastor there, and he's helping to serve us pizza. And he stays there with this little girl till the very end, and he's running the soundboard and the lights, and he's going around with me after our whole church leaves, and he's picking up foam cups, and he's throwing them away as his little girl plays. And I thought, this is amazing. In a culture, in an era, in a celebrity culture where even churches compete and compare and get territorial and get insecure, here's this little church who says, Oh, you guys want to buy like a giant building across the street and move a whole bunch of people there to worship Jesus? Yeah. Oh, and you grow by like 9 million percent every other day and uh, you want to move right across the street from us? Yeah. That's awesome. For the glory of King Jesus, let us help you. Let us be a part of this, and they open up their building. I think that's incredible. Redeemer Church, and that pastor, those are people who had the heart of John the Baptist. It's not about me. It's not about me. I can celebrate your win. I can welcome you, and I can even help you along the way. See like, can we be a church like that? Can I just declare, it's not about competition. It's not about better than these guys, both on a corporate level, as a church and individuals. In our place of work and in our school, we're going to celebrate the wins of other people around us. We can compete and we can go hard, but we're going to celebrate other people. Why? Because our value comes from King Jesus and not our performance. And not in being better than the next guy. So let me ask you, where does your value come from? When you really grab a hold of this truth that it's not on the line, that it's been given to you by God, it will free you up to love other people and to not feel that insecure need to compete and compare. Second truth we talked about is that life isn't about you. So you've got value, incredible value, dignity, worth. It's just that you're not that big of a deal compared to everybody else, even though we all think we are. Did you know that everything is about Jesus? So as we look at our next couple verses in John's kind of teaching of his disciples, I want you to ask the question, is my life about me or is it about Jesus? I mean, really, you're, you're at church on Sunday, so that's helpful. We're off to a good start. But I'm talking your Monday through Sunday is your life really about you, or is it about King Jesus? So let's look at the way that John kind of works his tension out in his own heart, uh, starting in verse 29. Remember, this is John's response to his disciples who are insecure and competing with Jesus's disciples. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice." Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. You see what he's showing us? He goes to the biblical metaphor of marriage. In the biblical metaphor of marriage, Jesus is always the groom. And when Jesus is the groom, who does the Bible say is his bride? The church, the people of God that he came to save and to redeem. And so what John is showing his disciples is, listen, Jesus is the groom. And these people, this is his bride. And in this moment, I'm the best man. I just get to be here in this moment to watch him pursue his people. And John knew why Jesus came. Remember chapter one, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He knew the immense love that the groom had for his bride. And this was his moment. That the groom had come and he would ultimately lay down his very life so that his bride would be made holy and be made pure and be made righteous and have a home with him in all of eternity. And he's saying, it's my great joy in this moment not to be the main guy, but to serve as the best man to the one groom who has come to receive his bride. I got to be the best man in a, in a wedding one time. It was my buddy Todd Baker, and it was down in Florida, and it's him and it's me. And on the other side is, is his wife and her maid of honor. And I'm telling you, in that moment, I wasn't getting married. That moment wasn't about me. I'm background noise To the real main event. But I got so much joy from being there in that moment. I look at these two, and she's beautiful. She's gorgeous, and she's godly. I've known Todd since I was a little guy, and I saw him go from, like, she's really cute. I should take her out on a date, to, like, I would die for this woman, and he pursued her, and he wooed her. And all this hard work to build that trust that in this moment she would say, I'm gonna give up my name and take your name. I'm gonna meld our lives. I'm I'm watching the culmination of this moment. And I was filled with joy, but it wasn't because that moment was about me. It was because my friend Todd, the groom, this is his moment. This is the culmination of their love story, and that's what John is saying. He said, I'm I'm the best man. I don't need to be center stage to get joy. I get my joy from Jesus. And John rejoiced in Jesus. In being near to Jesus, in hearing Jesus' voice, he made his whole life about Jesus. And it says in verse 29 that his joy was made complete in knowing Jesus. You know, I think in Christian circles like this, when we talk about making Jesus the center of your life, or Jesus needs to be on the throne, or Jesus needs to be priority in your life. I think we can almost say that um, with like a sense of of drag. Like, you know, it's the right thing to do. I learned it in Sunday school in the fourth grade that Jesus is supposed to be first in my life. And, you know, I probably would have more joy and be more fulfilled if I could put my needs and wants first. But I know it's the right thing to do. So I'm going to put Jesus in place of first priority in my life. But can I tell you a secret? There is a paradox to this life that not many people have figured out. That paradox is this. The more you live for yourself and for your joy, the more your joy will evade you and you will be miserable. And the more you die to yourself and your desires and your wants and you live for Jesus and his name and fame, the more actual joy you will experience in this world. Some of you don't believe me, and I would suggest that maybe that's why you're miserable. (laughs) I know that personally, on my worst weeks, when I'm grumpy and irritable and edgy and anxious and angry and nervous, which happens more than I'd like to admit, uh, especially to you, the church that I'm supposed to pastor, but just talk to my wife, (laughs) in those moments, if I'm honest with myself, it's because I've drifted back into the role of lead character of my life. All of a sudden, I'm concerned with my goals and my drive and my obstacles and my wants and what I want to accomplish, and I want to get things done my way. And if anything gets in my way, then it must be my enemy because they're keeping me from getting to where I want to go and I'm miserable. And it's ironic. You would think, man, if I pursue my wants and my desires, then I'm going to find joy. But the more you pursue that, the more it evades you. But the more you die to those things and actually pursue Jesus, you find this surprise and joy that had nothing to do with you. It's like being the best man at a wedding. Oh, you mean I can get joy and it doesn't need to be about me? That's it. So what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, Matthew 16, 24, he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the secret that John had figured out. He didn't need to compete or compare or get insecure, or defend his territory, name or fame or ministry because none of that threatened his joy. His joy didn't come from what he could accomplish. His joy was found in Jesus. That's why he closes out this section of verse 30 with the famous verse, he must increase but I must decrease. City Light, this is the anthem of anyone who's actually beheld Jesus and understood who he is and what he's done for you. If you understand Jesus in a small view, he will just feel like a religious obstacle standing between you and a more fulfilled life. But if you behold him for who he is, the only logical response is to say, I must decrease and he must increase. What is your view of Jesus? John had a big view of Jesus. Who is Jesus? He is the one who spoke all of creation into existence. Who is Jesus? He is your creator. Who is Jesus? He left the comforts of heaven to save and redeem sinners like you and me who couldn't remedy our own situation. Who is Jesus? He is the one who came to seek and save the lost. Who is Jesus? He is the one who right now is preparing a place for all of his children. Who is Jesus? He is the one that we will worship for glory with all of the angels. Holy, holy, holy. Holy is the Lord God Almighty. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain. When you understand who Jesus is, the idea of centering your life on anything else is just dumb. It's just lame. But when you understand and treasure and behold Jesus, you will say with earnestness and honesty along with John, I must decrease and he must increase. City Light, listen, you can chase money. You can chase a reputation. You can spend your whole life chasing the perfect family. Finally getting your father's approval. You can spend your whole life chasing your own name and your fame. But the more you chase it, the more it all eludes you. Here's the paradox. It's not about you. The more you die to all that stuff, and that you orient Jesus as the very center and head of your life, the more that you will find joy. Jesus is the one treasure worth pursuing, and he is the one treasure that you will keep for all of eternity. And so City Light, with the honest anthem of our lives... As individuals, as a collective church family, be verse 30. He must increase, I must decrease. More of Jesus, less of us. More of Jesus, less of our celebrity culture. i got to be a somebody and have something cool to put on social media. More of Jesus, less of the City Light brand and City Light this and City Light that. More of Jesus, less of my career and my goals and what I want to get to. my fo- More of Jesus, less of us. Amen? I'll end with this. I had the great privilege of doing my wife's grandfather's funeral this week, and uh, she got the call Sunday, back of the room. Grandpa died, and it it came as a shock, and uh, it was a a long week. We had his viewing on Tuesday night, his funeral on Wednesday, uh, the graveside burial on Thursday, and uh, it was a tough week because Sarah's really close to him, and he's really close to our family, and I respect him a ton, Uh, but it was really a blessing. I feel like God gave us, um, in some ways, some time this week to just take inventory of this man's life. And uh, Harold Ely met Jesus the summer of 1951 at a Bible conference in Okaboji, and he just decided at that point that he was going to live for Jesus, that the old Harold died and he was going to live for Jesus Christ. And his priorities, his honest priorities were worshiping Jesus discipling his kids to know Jesus, and living his life in such a way that other people would come to know Jesus. And so I officiate the funeral, and we have the luncheon afterwards, and several men came up to me and said, Harold Ely led me to faith in Jesus, and it changed my life. At the funeral, his three sons, who were walking with Jesus, stood up and gave testimony. My dad loved Jesus. I saw him on Sunday. I saw him during the week. He was not perfect, but he loved Jesus, and he taught me to follow Jesus, And I'll tell you this, in the end, Harold didn't have a ton of stuff, by the way, of of toys. He never traveled the world. He didn't uh, have all the stuff. But I promise you, he is the most joyful person I've ever met. And I think Harold had figured out what John the Baptist had figured out. He just decided early on in his faith that Jesus was going to take center stage of his life, and he would spend the remainder of his days living for Jesus' name and fame. He said, I must decrease, he must increase. And he lived one of the richest and most joy-filled lives of anyone I've ever met. City Light, it's not about you. And I think in our culture, we don't really have a palate. That's not palatable. What do you mean it's not about me? It sounds like an assault. <laughs> but this great paradox of the gospel, that's the best news you've ever heard. The more you decrease, the more you die to self, the more you live to Jesus, the more you are living the life that he intended for you to be, and there is no greater life. City Light, would that Be the anthem of our church. More of Jesus, less of us. Amen? We're going to respond with the taking of communion. Communion is this tangible, physical, beautiful reminder of the immense love that God has for us. That he would earn our salvation on our behalf. Listen to the words of uh, instruction for communion out of 1 Corinthians 11. It says, The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so our instructions tell us we do this meal for two reasons. It says we do it to remember. So we take the bread dip it in the juice and partake it. We remember, oh, this is not just like religious folklore. This was the man, Jesus Christ, God who came in the flesh and in a real body, he died and real blood was spilled. And we remember that he did that for us. And it also says we do it to proclaim. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so this is our proclamation, our anthem, that his death and and his life was for me, it was on my behalf. And I proclaim, I declare my faith in Jesus. By taking the elements, I'm declaring that it's not about me. I must declare, I need more of Jesus. It's his life, not mine. It's his righteousness, not mine. It's his forgiveness, not my perfection. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so if you have placed your faith in Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, you are welcome to the Lord's table. There will be servers who will come forward. They will also be in the back uh, By way of instruction, I will pray. The band will play. You guys stand up and worship. Whenever you're ready, you come forward to the table. The servers will rip the bread and hand it to you. You dip it in the juice. Partake that way. If you have any food allergies, you've got a special station in the back. And we always have a prayer team in the back. If you'd like to pray to receive Jesus and become a Christian today, they'd love to pray with you. If you have health concerns, Something troubling you? Uh, they're here to pray with you, and they would uh, invite you to come back and do that. And so, Father, in this moment, we just celebrate that life is found in Jesus Christ, and we just pray for your help. The culture is screaming at us that our value is found in what we can do and what the world says about us, and then ironically, at the same times, it says that that we have something to prove because the whole world revolves around us, and it's exhausting. God, we can't build a life worthy. And yet your word tells us our value is found in you alone. Before we've done anything, you have stamped your image on us. Moreover, you have come and given your life that we could be adopted as your children by grace free. And God, I pray that it would be good news that you can be the first important in the place of first importance in our lives. God, help us to repent of a life that says it's all about me, 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 me and see that the great joy is but dying to ourselves and living for you, 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 King Jesus. Jesus, would you be famous in this place? Would you be famous in our hearts? And would you be famous in this city? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.